What can take a dying man and raise him up to life again? What can heal a wounded soul? What can make us white as snow? What can fill the emptiness? What can mend our brokenness? Brokenness. Mighty, awesome, wonderful is the Holy Cross. Where the Lamb laid down his life to lift us from the fall. That is the power of the cross. What restores our faith in God? What reveals the Father's love? What can lead the wayward home? What can melt a heart of stone? What can free the guilty ones? What can save and overcome? Overcome. Mighty, awesome, wonderful.
God's Word this morning. If you would, open your Bibles to Colossians 2. We'll be reading verses 13 through 15. That's page uh, 681 in your pew Bible, if you uh, pull that out as well. We continue in the series on the cross of Christ. And today, Pastor Bruce will answer the question through the Word of God. What did the cross mean to Satan? Well, we're going to see what the Word of God has to say about that this morning through this message this morning. So again, follow along as I read Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the, cir- and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Bow our heads perfectly, please, this morning. Father in heaven, you are the Lord of lords. We come to you praising you and thanking you for who you are, for your love, for your mercy, your power, and your justice. Thank you, Father, for your son, Jesus, who gave his life on that cross, Father, for us, but did not stay on the cross, was buried and rose again. And in you, Jesus, we have hope of eternal life, hope of a life this side of heaven, of what you would give to us through that, Father. And through this, we learned this morning that uh, we are overcomers because of you, that Satan does not have power as we see this. And we just pray that this word, your word, comes alive to us this morning. Speak to us on what we're to hear, Father. Be with Pastor Bruce in this message. We thank you in your name. Amen. Cross of Christ. What does it mean? That's the question we're seeking to answer as we continue in this series this morning and for the next couple of weeks here. We said last Sunday that it's common to see uh, images of the cross adorning buildings such as churches. It's even common to see images of cross uh, hanging on people's uh, bodies or as a necklace or a pendant, even tattooed on their arms. And uh, it, it's just common to see the cross everywhere in our culture today. And yet the image that is so sanitized for us today in, in our culture was grotesque. It was abhorrent to those living in the first century. After all, as you saw in the video, the cross was a symbol of evil. The cross was a symbol of torture and shame. So what does the cross mean, though? That's the real question. We may wear a cross. We may have it in our, hang it up in our living room or whatever the case may be. But what does it actually mean, not only to God, as we saw and answered last Sunday, but what does it mean for Satan himself even now? Well, that's the question we're seeking to answer in this series. Max Lucado, in his book, No Wonder They Call Him Savior, says of the cross, and I quote, The cross rests on the timeline of history like a compelling diamond. Its tragedy summons all sufferers. Its absurdity attracts all cynics. Its hope lures all searchers. My, what a piece of wood. History has idolized it and despised it, gold-plated it and burned it, worn it and trashed it. History has done everything to it but ignore it. That's the one option that the cross does not offer. No one can ignore it. And today we're going to see that not even Satan himself can ignore the cross. So what did the cross mean to Satan? 
Well, we find the answer uh, in this, this question, the answer to this one question in a simple statement, and uh, it's right at the beginning of your notes. On the cross, Satan was crushed by Jesus Christ. And to that we all say, amen, amen hallelujah, I mean, yes, something you can cheer about. Satan was crushed by Jesus Christ on the cross. In fact, God promised this. He predicted it in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, after Adam and Eve committed their sin and after they were tempted by the serpent. As you know, God came and he put a curse on the serpent and he made this promise in Genesis 3.15. Look at it, what it says. This is God speaking and he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. And he, that is Christ, will crush your head, and you, Satan, will strike his heel. Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman who would one day crush the serpent's ugly head. And of course, this crushing blow of Satan's head was struck when Jesus died on the cross. And in the process, God tells us that his heel was bruised on the cross by Satan. In fact, isn't it kind of interesting when Christ died on the cross, where on his body did they nail him on the cross? Of course, hands, but also right through his feet, his heels. On Friday, about sundown, when they took the dead body of Jesus down from the cross, I'm sure it appeared that Satan had won the battle. Yes, Satan delivered a terrible blow to Jesus Christ on Good Friday. No doubt he thought he had thrown a knockout punch. And Jesus is down and out for the count, never to rise again. But of course, we know the story. Satan was all wrong. All he did was strike Jesus on the heel. Because on Sunday morning, which is why we celebrate Easter, the true victor walked out of the grave alive from the dead. Now that is glorious. So what did the cross mean to Satan? I mean, what does it mean to say that Jesus crushed the head of the serpent? And the bigger question perhaps is, and how are we included in that? What does it mean for for us here today? Because folks, listen, we are included in Christ's victory on the cross over Satan. It has implications for us even now. I wish we had a, uh, an iPhone with a camera on it and somebody had been able to capture the drama that took place in the spiritual world when Christ died on the cross. Because a cosmic battle was being fought that day. Satan was there, God was there, God was there, and the rest of humanity was there. And Paul kind of gives us a, a picture, if you will. He gives us a glimpse of what took place on the cross in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 15. Let's read it one more time, and I want you to notice this. Look at it with me again. It says, And you, being dead in your trespasses. And of course, trespasses, that's simply another way to say you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He has made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses or sins, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of our way, 
having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. That is in reference to Satan and his demonic foes, the fallen angels. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, to understand this passage, it helps to kind of imagine, if you will, all of what Paul's talking about kind of playing out in the courtroom of heaven where God is judge, Satan is our accuser, and we are the prosecuted. And so I want you to just, I want us to go through this just a little bit briefly before we get into the specifics or the second aspect of what took place on the cross and how it impacted Satan and what it meant for him. Because Paul talks, first of all, talks about what it meant for you and I. Notice here, number one, the accusation of Satan. His accusation before God is that we are guilty. Guilty. Satan stands before God. And let me tell you, he accuses us of being guilty of sin. And of course, those charges are accurate. Since we are what? Since we're sinners. Both by nature. That is, we are born that way. And by our choice in this life even now. In verse 14, the ESV translation, Paul describes God's law, which we have broken, as the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now, whether we know it or not, God's law has a claim over us. We are not free to write our own laws. And of course, that's one of the problems in our world today and in our society. Man wants to do what they think is right in their own eyes. We write our laws, if you will, for for myself. I determine what's right or wrong for me. But God has already made precedent. He's already written the laws over us. And we're not free to write our own rules for the simple reason that God's already written them. And so these laws, Paul says, listen, they stand against us. Paul uses that word, they're contrary to us. And we stand guilty before God Almighty before and with these laws. And we stand guilty in silence. Why? Because we know we're guilty. I'm a sinner. And I've broken God's laws. But let me tell you, Satan is not so silent before God. He reminds God of his promise in Ezekiel 18.4 where it says, The soul who sins will die. And so as our accuser, I can just picture this, it's quite possibly Satan approaches God with a list of my sins, with a list of your sins, and he comes armed with reasons why we should die. And Satan's accusations, are they just? Absolutely they are just. Why? God tells us. Paul reminds us in the Bible, in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. Which brings us to the penalty of our sin. And it is death. So we have the accusation of Satan before God in this courtroom of heaven, and Satan is saying, guilty. The penalty of the sin is death. Now, understand, the dispute is not whether we're guilty of sin or not. The issue is over what should be done about our guilt of sin, over our predicament here. And Satan says, God, condemn her. He says, God, condemn him. And Satan 
I mean, God comes out and he says, no, I will save him. I will save her. And Satan insists that we should have the same judgment as him. Why? Because we are also tainted with sin. We have broken the laws. We're no different than Satan in that regard. And Satan knows that he could count on God to hold fast to his holiness. We looked at this a little bit last Sunday. Satan knew that God was loving. But he also knew that in his love, he could not, that is, God cannot override nor cancel his justice. Why? Because as part of the majesty of God, the majesty of his holiness, of who God is, he's loving, he's just, and he's holy. And to disregard any of those would be to cease to be God himself and his character and what is the essence of him. Satan knows this about God. But what Satan did not know was that God would keep his promise that the soul who sins will die. But that someone else would do the dying in God's redemptive plan of mankind. You see, the wages of sin would still be death. But it would be God's Son who would die in our place on the cross. In fact, we're going to look at that specifically next Sunday on what the cross meant to Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul describes this transaction, if you will, in verse 14. Look at it with me, Colossians 2. This is what's taking place on the cross. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements. In other words, the record of our debt, of our sin that we owe God. He wiped it out that was against us, which was contrary to us. And what did he do with it? He took it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. Now, you got to understand, in those days, let's go back to Jesus' day, Paul's day, when this is being written here. In those days, when a criminal hung on a cross, his crime had to be publicly communicated, publicly proclaimed. And basically, the list of his wrongdoings, the list of his transgressions was written on a, on a placard, if you will, and it was nailed right above his head on the cross or wherever he was to be executed. Uh, in fact, you may recall that Pilate put a notice above Christ's head on the cross. Remember what it read? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That was his crime. He claimed to be God, the king of the Jews, which, of course, was true for him. And high above Pilate's words, though, there was another cosmic bulletin board on which our sins were listed. And though we weren't born yet, the sins that we would commit 2,000 years later were still recorded on that. Now, don't miss what God does with the record of our sins that makes us a debtor to the wages of sin. God took the record of all our sins that made you a debtor, instead of holding them up in front of your face and condemning you with them and using them as a warrant to send you to hell, he put them in the Son's hand and drove a nail through them into the cross. You see, understand, on the cross, God saw Christ dying for our sins. As we learned last Sunday, then, his wrath, God's wrath was turned away because of that. His justice was demonstrated, and the penalty of our sins was now paid for. 
which brings us to the verdict of God in this courtroom of heaven, if you can imagine it. And God's verdict for you and I is forgiven. Or you could even write the word justified. We are forgiven. Paul says in verse 13 that God pronounces us forgiven of all our trespasses. Woo! That's a glorious thing, isn't it? Now think about this with me. God requires two things of us. Because of the gravity of our sin and the majesty of God's holiness, God requires two things. He requires, one, the punishment of our sin. And he also requires perfection in our lives in order for him to reconcile us to himself. You see, our sins must be punished. And our lives must be righteous in order to have a relationship with God. But that presents a problem, as we learned last Sunday, because we cannot bear our own punishment. And we cannot provide our own righteousness. Therefore, in God's love and in His redemptive plan, He provided His own Son to do both of those things for us. Listen, Christ bears our punishment on the cross, and He performs our righteousness there as well. And when we receive Christ into our hearts, when we humble ourselves and by faith put our our, our trust in Jesus Christ and receive Him as our substitute and as our sacrifice, man, all of His punishment and all of His righteousness is now counted as ours. Again, we're going to look at what all that really means next Sunday. But here's the deal. In fact, Christ satisfied our debt, our sin debt, so completely that we who believe in Christ we no longer owe God any righteousness. And that's why Jesus' last words on the cross were what? Remember what Jesus' last words on the cross were? It is finished. Which can be translated paid in full. What was paid in full? Our sin debt was paid in full. This is why we can say with Paul now in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. But for those, listen to me, who do not accept Christ as their Savior, for those who continue to reject God's gift of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ, listen, Satan's original indictment of us stands. We are still guilty. And the penalty is death. And the verdict is guilty as charged. But for those who believe in Christ and those who receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, listen, we have now been forgiven of our sins and we have been reconciled to God forever and ever. That is a glorious thing. And that is the first aspect of what Paul is talking about in this passage in Colossians chapter 2 of what all took place on the cross there when Jesus died. But it was as if it was taking place not only on the cross, but in this courtroom of heaven because there's legality terms going on, if you can imagine. Here's the point. What happened on the cross played out in this courtroom of heaven, and it not only impacted us as guilty sinners, it impacted Satan as our accuser as well. 
Which leads us then to this question, what did Christ's victory on the cross ultimately mean to Satan? Well, this is an easy message to remember. We can summarize what the cross meant to Satan in two words. You got it? Getting ready for it? Defeated and doomed. Summarizes it right there. Satan is defeated and he is doomed. That's what the cross meant to him. Now, let's look at that in a little more detail here for a few minutes. Number one, Satan was defeated decisively on the cross. He was defeated decisively. As we said, this brings us to the second aspect of what took place on the cross in Colossians 2. But this time, look at it from verse, the point of view of verse 15. Verse 15, it says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So again, the first aspect of Christ's saving work on the cross is the forgiveness of our sins. We find that in verse 13. And the second aspect is this cosmic overthrow of Satan and his demonic forces. So let me show you three ways Satan was defeated on the cross here. First of all, Satan's works were destroyed by Christ's death. His works were destroyed. Look what it says in 1 John 3, 8 with me. It says, he who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, now the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That word destroy, it's an interesting word. It it doesn't mean annihilate and remove from the face of the earth or just, you know, you take a shotgun and and you, you, you shoot at something and it just annihilates and it disappears. It's obliterated. That's not what this word destroy means. Here it means to render powerless. It's like a mighty machine that has lost its power. And so when Jesus died on the cross, you could say he pulled the plug on Satan. Now this leads us to a question then. Well, what what are the works of the devil that Christ destroyed on the cross? What works of Satan did he destroy? Well, in this context of 1 John here, of this verse, the works of the devil are sins. Think about it. When people commit sin... It is the work of the devil, right? And the work of the devil is to tempt people to sin. And when we sin, the work of the devil is accomplished. So what Christ came to destroy on the cross is not just the guilt of our sin, but now the power of sin in our lives. We can think of it this way. Christmas is God's invasion on earth to rescue people from the devil and to destroy the sin in their lives. And Easter is Christ's victory over Satan and sin. So the very first thing, uh, how Satan was defeated is his works were destroyed by Christ's death. The works to tempt us to sin. His power over us. Number two, the second way Satan was defeated is he was disarmed and disgraced by Christ's victory. He's disarmed and disgraced. Look again what it says in Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed principalities and powers. And then he disgraces them by making a public spectacle of them and triumphing over them in it. Now to disarm someone 
means to take from them the means by which they might hurt you. For example, somebody has a gun in their hand, and they're pointing it at you. To disarm them would mean what? Take it away. You got it. To take away the gun and their ammunition away from them. As long as they have a gun in their hand and enough ammo with it, you're in big trouble still. So disarm somebody means to remove from them the means by which they might hurt you. In the same way, when Jesus died on the cross, you can think of it this way, he took the guns and ammo out of the hands of Satan and his demons. Now, of course, the question is, well, what weapon did Jesus disarm Satan of? Well, go back to this analogy, this picture of the courtroom of heaven. What is Satan doing before God the judge? Exactly. Satan stands before God and he accuses me. He accuses you that we are guilty of sin and that we should die. In fact, that's what the name Satan means. Accuser. But now, this destructive weapon that Satan had in his hand was stripped from his hand. Satan was disarmed of the single weapon that can condemn us. That is unforgiven sin. Because when Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins, that accusation was nullified. In the words of Paul, it was wiped out the record of our debt. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's huge. That's big. So what does this mean for us today, though? Well, it means without sin in the law to condemn us. Oh, man, Satan is a defeated foe, folks. He is a defeated foe. He is disarmed of the accusations against us. Now, that doesn't mean Satan doesn't still falsely accuse us, does it? Man, he comes and whispers in our ear and he accuses us all the time. But his accusations are powerless. They're without merit. Sure, he can still point his finger at us and still accuse us. But folks, he's only shooting blanks. He's like Barney Fife without his one bullet. So when Satan accuses us, listen, we can stand and we can say what Paul said in Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect. In other words, who shall bring a charge against me because I'm in Christ? I'm God's chosen one. Who shall accuse me? Who is to condemn? And Paul goes on, he says, Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul tells us that Christ not only disarmed Satan of his single weapon, of accusing us, but he also disgraced Satan and his demons by making a public spectacle of them and triumphing over them in it. In other words, Jesus publicly humiliated Satan and his foes by exposing Satan for who he is. And the Bible tells us that Satan is a liar and he is a murderer. We see that he's a liar all the way in the beginning in the Garden of Adam the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. 
He's a murderer because his one purpose in life is to destroy your life. John tells us that in the book of John. Satan has one goal for you. Destruction. Death. A murderer. And when Jesus triumphed over Satan and his foes, he did so by returning, by raising from the dead and returning to glory to sit at the right hand of the Father. I like how one author describes the scene. Because this word picture that Paul is giving us, you go back to the Roman days when Roman generals would go to war and they would win a victory. And I quote this one author here. He says, picture the Roman legions returning home from a victorious war. As they march through the city, vast crowds of people line the streets to cheer the victory. Then come the victorious generals, each one accompanied by singers, dancers, and musicians. And finally, at the end of the parade, march the captives, which with their hands tied, they are defeated and now brought back to be displayed as proof of Rome's invincible power. In other words, when Jesus died, something like that happened in the spiritual realm. Satan and his foes were disgraced. There's one more way Satan was defeated on the cross. And that is Satan's power of death was broken. His power of death was broken by Christ's resurrection. You know, what do people fear most in life? You know, I think one of the the greatest fears that grip people's hearts today, probably none is greater than the fear of death. We don't really enjoy talking about death. In fact, many people will do everything they can to change the subject of death. And that's one reason why people will turn to different things in our world, whether it be alcohol, drugs, a career, sexuality, pleasure. It's it's another reason why people are so fanatical about their health of their bodies, as if they can delay the inevitable You see, deep down in the human heart, there is a fear of death that Satan uses to keep us enslaved and in bondage. He plays upon our fear of death to keep us in the chains of sin. In fact, every time I I preach a funeral, I'm reminded of the reality of what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, where Paul says, the sting of death is sin. Think about it. When the unsaved die, they, they die with their sins still upon them. When they're on their deathbed, they, it, the, their sins that are upon them are like a heavy weight pulling them down to hell. They die miserable. They die fearful because they don't know what to do with their sins and their guilt. Oh, what a difference it makes. To die knowing our sins are forgiven. And the power of death has been broken. Notice what it says in Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. The writer says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he, that is speaking of Christ, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You know what? There's no doubt about it. There's no denying it. Death stinks, doesn't it? 
Death isn't fun. It stinks. Which is why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death is the consequence of our sin. But praise God, Christ conquered it for us. And now he gives us this wonderful promise in John eleven twenty six, where he says, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now that's not talking about never die physically, but to never die spiritually. And then John asks the question, do you believe this? In other words, do you believe this promise? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? John Stott comments in his book, The Cross of Christ, that for the Christian, death has become a trivial episode, a minor inconvenience, and nothing more. Now, I'll be honest with you, unbelievers, they don't understand that kind of confidence. I've done enough funerals now, both believers and unbelievers, to recognize the difference. And unbelievers don't understand that kind of confidence as we enter death's door. For them, death is the end, or so they think. But for us as believers, listen, death is just the next step in our eternal life with God. That's a wonderful promise that we have from Jesus Christ. Why? Because one of the victories that he accomplished on the cross is he broke Satan's power of death by his resurrection. So what did the cross mean to Satan? It meant Satan was defeated decisively. And number two, it means Satan is doomed eternally in the lake of fire. He's doomed. Satan's defeat was decisive on the cross. John 12, 31, Jesus declares that now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And in John 16, 11, Jesus adds that the ruler of this world has been judged. But listen to me, the final blow will be delivered when Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. And we see Satan's doom in Revelation 20.10. Notice it in your notes here. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now make no mistake about it. Satan's doom is guaranteed. This is as certain to happen as the fact that Jesus Christ already came and died and rose again. I love what Martin Luther said about Satan's doom. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And what is that one little word that defeats the devil? It is the name Jesus. It's what we sing about. On the cross, Jesus decisively defeated Satan. And now he is eternally doomed in the lake of fire. But perhaps some of you are here and you're thinking, well, if Satan is defeated and doomed, He doesn't seem to know about it, does he? What are you saying here, Bruce? If he's Satan in doom, he doesn't seem to think so because he seems to be having a field day in this world still. What's up with that? That's a good question. Notice it in your notes. It's true. Make no mistake about it. Satan is defeated and he's doomed, but yes, he is still dangerous. He is still dangerous. We have seen that on the cross, Satan was defeated as completely as anyone can be defeated. But on the other hand, the Bible also warns us that Satan is still dangerous until he is thrown into the lake of fire. This is why 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9 says, Be sober now. 
Be vigilant because your adversary, who? The devil. He is walking around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So resist him. Stand fast in the faith. James 4, 7 says, Therefore, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. And what will he do? Flee from you. Why? Because he's rendered powerless. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, 10 through 11, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes of the devil. Listen, what happened on the cross was indeed the total defeat of Satan. In legal terms, if you go back to our courtroom of heaven, Satan was tried, he was found guilty, and sentenced to eternal destruction. However, the sentence has not yet been executed. Perhaps you could say Satan is currently, if we could say it this way, out on bail. He's wrecking havoc across this world while waiting for the day when he will be cast into the lake of fire once and for all. Until that day, though, listen to me, he is destroying lives, he's breaking up homes, and disrupting God's work as much as he can. So understand, Christ's victory on the cross does not mean Satan can no longer fight against us. We can think of it this way. Do you remember in the Old Testament, King Saul, the first king of Israel, who wasn't a godly man, who refused to submit himself to God's ways and obey God. And God finally said, I've had enough of it. And he comes to King Saul and he says, I'm taking the kingdom out from under you. I'm stripping you, in other words, of your kingship and your kingdom. And yet, God still allowed him to harass the next king, who was King David, for ten long years. Much in the same way, Although Satan has been defeated and disarmed, he is still allowed to harass us, make false accusations against us, and try to condemn us. And the obvious question that perhaps we all want to ask right now is, well, why? Why does God allow Satan to live then? Why does he allow Satan to harass us and accuse me? Why doesn't God just wipe out Satan today? You ever wonder that? I mean, after all, God has the right to do it. He has the power to do this. And God says he's going to do it someday. So why didn't God just cast Satan into the lake of fire yesterday? Because, let's admit it, if God had done it yesterday, listen, I wouldn't be tempted today. And neither would you. I mean, after all, the Bible says, lead me not into temptation... And the best way not to be led into temptation is to take the tempter away. So God, why don't you just do us all a favor and take the tempter away then? I don't know about you, but that's what I'm thinking about now. And yet God doesn't do it that way, does he? And the question is why? Why? Why does God still allow Satan to live and to harass us as God's daughters and sons? 
Well, here's the short answer. Notice it in your notes. Because God's glory shines brightest when we live for Christ over Satan. Now, folks, listen to me. This is where in our human thinking, we are, we're, we're, we're so limited, and, and I am just as much. See, from our perspective, the appropriate thing and the right thing for God to do is remove Satan out of my life so I could just live hunky-dory. But that's from our perspective, and it's all about me. What we fail to understand is that all of life, all of my life, all of your life is all about God and His glory. It's about God getting the glory through the ages of history. That's why His redemptive plan that began with Genesis 3.15 and runs all the way through the book of Revelation and into the millennial kingdom is all about the glory of God and bringing God glory in doing so even through His Son. And we fit into that. We don't think that way, though. We want everything easy. You see, the key to understanding why God still allows Satan to live is that God aims to defeat Satan in a way that glorifies not only His awesome power, but also the superiority of Jesus Christ over Satan. John Piper puts it this way in his book. It's a book called Spectacular Sins. Listen, and I quote his words. He says, God has ordained that Satan have a long leash with God holding on to it because he knows that when we walk in and out of those temptations, struggling both with the physical and moral effects that they bring, more of God's glory will shine in that battle than if he took Satan out yesterday. So yes, make no mistake about it, God could simply exert his raw power and snuff Satan out if he wished. And that would certainly display God's amazing power before the world. But it would not display so clearly the superiority of Jesus Christ over Satan. You see, that was displayed, yes, on the cross when Jesus defeated Satan. That is God's power. But Christ's superiority, listen, His superiority is displayed most and it is displayed when we resist the works of the devil and instead live for who? Christ. Do you see it now? Is it beginning to click in your mind? You see, we're not robots. We, we have the opportunity to respond to God. It's no different than in the Garden of Eden. God gave Adam and Eve the, the, the ability to respond to both good and right. To not eat of the tree. The one forbidden one. And when we choose to do right, when we choose to live for God and live for Christ over the works of the devil and his temptations and all that the world offers to us, 
What are we doing? We are displaying before the world that Jesus is more superior than anything this world has to offer. And that brings glory to God. Now do you understand why God still allows Satan to roam as a roaring lion? Because when we resist him, it matters. But let's be honest, living for Christ is easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, this is not easy. Satan is still powerful. His temptations are real, which leaves us with a crucial question. How then do we live for Christ over Satan? Well, in the meantime, till Satan's final doom, notice this, there is grace. There is abundant grace to live for Christ over Satan. Notice what it says in Romans 16, 20. It says, And the God of peace, what will he do to Satan? Crush! I like that. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. And how we wish that would come sooner than later. But notice the last phrase, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. In other words, Get this. Do you know what Paul's telling it? He, he's, saying, he's saying to us, until the final victory comes, until Satan is vanquished in the lake of fire, there, there is grace. There is more than enough grace to stand against Satan and to live for Jesus Christ. And this grace, you know what's cool about it? It arrives every day in just the right amount for the battles we face. It is new every morning. Remember how in the book of Lamentations it's described? Great is God's faithfulness to his sons and daughters in Christ. So as we conclude, perhaps the most important question that we could end with this morning is not so much about what did the cross mean to Satan, but perhaps the question we should really end with is, Are we living for Christ by God's grace today? Are we displaying the superiority of Christ in our lives? Or are we still living for the works of the devil? Listen, do you feel defeated and discouraged? Then be strong in God's grace. It's more than sufficient. Have you been tempted to give in to the works of the devil? James tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Perhaps even now, are you currently living in your sin? Then, man, I encourage you, run to the cross and receive God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ has already won the battle. Satan can harass you, but he cannot destroy you. He is defeated and doomed, and there is grace to live for Jesus Christ. With your heads bowed. And as we prepare for a response time here this morning, listen, let me ask you again, where are you at? How are you living? Are you living for Christ by God's grace? Or are you living for the works of the devil? And perhaps you're here this morning and you've never been forgiven. You've never come to the cross to receive Jesus Christ forgiveness and his work on the cross listen your very first step is to run to the cross and put your faith and trust in jesus christ this morning 
in his work that he did for you. For those of you that are believers, where are you at in your relationship with Christ? Who's winning out? Christ or the devil? This is the time to respond. Listen, even as believers, we can be made clean and righteous anew if we confess our sins before the Lord. Will you respond here this morning right where you're at? As the praise team sings, this is your opportunity. The cross.